welcome to the Come to Believe Network second panel discussion on design with inclusion in mind, belonging in higher ed. My name is Carlos Martinez and I am a proud alumnus of Aruba College class of 2019 as well as a 2021 graduate of Loyola University Chicago. It is my pleasure to be with you all for today's discussion. Just a quick overview of our time together today. I will do brief introductions of our panelists. Then we will have a research presentation about our, a framework for thinking about belonging and inclusion on college campuses, followed by a roundtable discussion on belonging with practitioners from CTB, Doherty Family College, and Aruba College. Finally, we will have time for audience Q&A. If you have any questions that come up during the presentation, use a Q&A feature to submit your questions. Let's begin with the biographies. Dr. Tiffany N. Brannan is an assistant professor of social psychology at UCLA and the director of the Culture and Contact Lab. She received her PhD and MA from Stanford University and her BA from Florida International University. Her research examines sociocultural identities and negatively stereotyped groups such as African-American, African-Americans and Latino, Latina, Latinx Americans and she investigates the potential for these identities to serve as a psychological resource, one that can facilitate a variety of individual and intergroup benefits. Her research has been published in top academic journals and she is currently a member of the editorial board for the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology and has been an elected council member for the Society for the Psychological Study of Social Issues. Dr. Buffy Smith, as the interim dean at Doherty Family College, Dr. Smith's research interests include examining racial and class disparities within the higher education system. She also writes on policy issues dealing with mentoring, access, retention, equity, and diversity in higher education. She has over 15 years of experience researching how colleges and universities can assist underrepresented students with navigating the institutional culture of higher education in order to achieve academic success. Dr. Smith's publications have been featured in journals such as African-American Research Perspectives and Equity and Excellence in Education. She is the author of the book, Mentoring at Risk Students Through the Hidden Curriculum of Higher Education. Dr. Lavar Pope is a clinical associate professor of political science at Aruba College. He was born in Waukegan, Illinois and raised in the Chicago area. He received his BA and MA from Lehigh University and his PhD from the University of California, Santa Cruz. At Arupe, he teaches a number of courses in political science, including power, rap, rap music, and urban America, which is a course he designed while at Arupe. He also teaches American government and citizenship, which he teaches to most pre-majors at Arupe, and two other courses, Introduction to Political Thought and International Relations. His research interests include race and ethnic politics and history, political ethnography, urban politics, media studies, political communication, and American politics. His first book, Rap and Politics, a case study of Panther, Gangster, and Hi-Fi Discourses in Oakland, California, 1965-2010, was published in 2020. We have Aisha Meadows, they, them, is a Chicago native and proud alumni of the inaugural Aruba College class of 2017, as well as a 2019 graduate of Loyola University Chicago with a BA in advertising public relations. After graduation, they spent two years serving as an American, America Corp member in both Southern Colorado as an art program coordinator and at 2-6 Chai as a development and communication associate. They are passionate about uplifting and serving the BIPOC and other marginalized communities. Aisha is honored to be part of the CTB team as a communications manager. And lastly, we have Steve Katsouris, Society of Jesus, is the president and CEO of the Come to Believe Network. From 2014 until August of 2020, Father Katsouris served as the founding dean and executive director of Arupa College at Loyola University Chicago. Arupa is a two-year college that continues the Jesuit tradition of offering a rigorous liberal arts education to a diverse population, many of whom are the first in their family to pursue higher education, like myself. Because of the success of Arupa College, Father Katsouris moved to New York in August of 2020 to launch Come to Believe, a network dedicated to replicating and scaling the Arupa model nationally. 
now we'll start with Dr. Smith or Dr. Brennan, I believe. Yes, thank you. <laughs> All right, wonderful. I'll go ahead and share my screen. All right, um, so I was asked to just share um, very briefly about my research. And so I'm gonna try to do that, keep it extraordinarily brief. Um, and so I wanna um, share about a framework um, that I use in my work that looks at um, multiple pathways to belonging um, for students from marginalized identities. Um, and it particularly thinks about how um, marginalization is of course tied to um, prejudice and stigma, but importantly, it's also tied to pride and strengths and that it's important from a policy perspectives and a practice perspective to keep this complexity tied to the identity in mind. Um, and so the framework that I use for um, quite a bit of my research um, thinks about psychological selves. Um, and for a variety of reasons, um, there are aspects of how people construct the selves, how the selves um, impacts um, behavior and motivation that make selves ideal for thinking about how to intervene when we're thinking about social inequalities, which are also very complex. Um, and so again, this model thinks about marginalized social group members as having experiences that are associated with stigma, but yet importantly, importantly also associated with strength. And in this model, it thinks about um, the experience of stigma um, and strengths um, as being overlapping and connected and really thinking about strengths as um, being a creative and adaptive historical and contemporary response that marginalized groups um, have done in the context of very explicit oppression and prejudice, right? So it recognizes that uh, marginalized groups haven't been passive in experiencing stigma. And in fact, they have developed cultural um, and other resources to respond and to um, cultivate resistance and resilience despite that stigma. Um, and so some examples of this is if we think about, um, you know, if we think about um, examples of prejudice in the United States, um, historically, such as slavery, um, we might think about some of the experiences of slaves, but again, that experience um, wasn't passive. Like we know um, that in response to um, the oppression um, of slavery, that slaves were active in developing um, strategies such as slave codes and also working with allies to develop really interdependent um, um, un um, pathways to freedom, such as the Underground Railroad. Um, we can even think about this with um, more modern institutions, right? So we can think about, well, what's the experience like for um, individuals from marginalized backgrounds of interacting with mainstream schools? This is also a context where stigma um, is very, it's a very, um, it tends to happen quite a bit in these contexts. But again, um, in the same way that marginalized groups um, are tasked with interacting with um, mainstream environments in which um, there are um, explicit prejudice, there's the risk of being seen through the lens of negative stereotypes. Marginalized groups have both in the present, but also historically have developed their own institutions to respond um, to the stigma. And one of the best examples of this um, actually comes from if we think about um, the church um, in, in the African American context. And I want to go through kind of a somewhat long example to really articulate why um, strengths, um, they're more than just a response to stigma, but they are importantly a response to stigma and they're tied to resilience. And um, one example that I can give that really highlights this function, um, for instance, of the Black church um, for African Americans in the United States actually comes from an excerpt in which um, Barack Obama in 2015, um, when he was trying to articulate um, as the then president of the United States um, to the US and to international audiences, what was the significance of a massacre happening in an African American church, the Charleston church shooting. Um, he shared this about the African American church. And I invite you um, as I go through this example to really hear um, the references to stigma, right? Like the historical and contemporary oppression that African Americans have individually and collectively endured, but also the role and the function of the church in, in actively responding to that stigma, that stigma in ways that cultivated strengths and actually ways to survive um, despite the, the oppression. And he said um, in this 2015 excerpt, the church is and always has been the center of African-American life, a place to call our own in a too often hostile world, a sanctuary from so many hardships. Over the course of centuries, black churches served as hush harbors where slaves could worship in safety, 
praise houses where their free descendants could gather and shout hallelujah, rest stops for the weary along the Underground Railroad, bunkers for the foot soldiers of the civil rights movement. They have been and continue to be community centers where we organize for jobs and justice, places of scholarship and network, um, network places where children are loved and fed and kept out of harm's way and told that they are beautiful and smart and taught that they matter. That's what happens in church. That's what the Black church means, our beating heart, the place where our dignity as a people is inviolate. And again, um, in thinking about this larger framework of both the experiences of stigma and stress, um, there, there are so many roots that are tied, for instance, to the Black church tradition in the United States. But when you think about the function um, in particular that Obama points out in this excerpt of it being a place where Black children are taught they're beautiful and smart and that they matter, it's hard to imagine the church evolving to have that function without thinking about the mainstream experiences of Black children and families in mainstream institutions where they're literally given the opposite um, message of that. Right, and so this framework um, that I'll talk about um, very briefly um, today um, really tries to understand um, identity in this more complex way, right, of really recognizing that what it means to be part of a marginalized group, of course, involves the experience of stigma, but it also can involve um, resources and sense of connections to in-group others and sources of resilience that are tied to historical and contemporary responses to that stigma, and that from a from an intervention perspective, um, that it could be helpful um, to think about ways to, um, to minimize and reduce stigma, but also to welcome in strengths tied to identity. And so again, um, this is the framework in a nutshell, right? It says, okay, well, what might be, if we think about um, not just my work, but lots of research in social psychology, how might we design institutions to afford um, the best possible outcomes for marginalized students? We should, of course, um, take steps to remove or eliminate stigma, but we could do more. We should, we should um, explicitly include or promote strengths and that doing so um, could be beneficial. And so I'll share with you um, in the time that I have left um, some data in which we looked at the experience of Latinx and African-American college students longitudinally. And we looked at their experiences of pride and um, prejudice on campus. And so pride experiences um, involve things like taking courses in African-American studies or Latinx studies and involved um, being part of cultural groups on campus or living in racial and ethnic themed dorms. So th experiences in which identity um, was salient, but it was in ways where people could interact with strengths and the history and the culture of their group. But we also looked at um, students' experiences of prejudice, right? So these were things like hearing a derogatory remark about your group. And we looked at how both of these types of experiences influence in-group and out-group closeness, sense of belonging, and a variety of really important outcomes that are tied to academics and well-being. So including um, who graduates using registrar's data in four years, as well as well-being outcomes like depression. And here's what we found. We found that pride experiences um, um, predicted stronger in-group closeness um, and that prejudice experiences harmed out-group closeness and that both in-group closeness and out-group closeness um, mattered for a broader sense of institutional belonging. And in turn, institutional belonging predicted um, these really important academic and well-being outcomes. And so I'll end there because I um, would really um, love to um, engage and um, not spend all of the time talking about this research, but this is um, some evidence of this framework that really encourages um, thinking about identity in this more complex way. And we've shown um, um, and some of our more recent work, um, benefits of this framework and thinking about other stigmatized groups. So thinking about um, individuals who identify as survivors and victims of sexual violence. Um, so it's a broad framework. Um, and so thank you for your time um, and allowing me to share very briefly about this framework. Well, on behalf of all of us, uh, Dr. Brennan, thanks so much for framing uh, this discussion for us. You know, I'm reminded of you know, stigma and strengths well, I frequently talk about uh, deficit narratives versus asset narratives. So this is another way of, of uh, for me to understand this. So uh, a question for for all of um, my colleagues on the panel: How does Dr. Brandon's research align with your experiences in in your higher ed environments, whether as a student or um, as a faculty member or as an administrator? And then. I guess, relatedly, 
How, do, how would you describe the typical approach to inclusion on, on campus, uh, on the campuses of selective four-year universities? I can begin if, if no one else wants to uh, begin. If, if, um, I, would, I would say that, um, you know, my experience um, on campus um, and my path um, kind of through kind of PWI, uh, uh, predominantly white institutions. Um, I grew up in Waukegan, the Waukegan area. Um, I was uh, marked as gifted or whatever through, through grade school. And um, the, you know, the local school wasn't great and ended up, you know, having to go or not having to go, but better opportunities across the border in Kenosha at a Catholic school where um, they taught me very good math and good writing. Um, I happened to be able to run fast um, and, and at, at times, I guess, um, and was recruited for, for sports and was able to, uh, you know, th that was an opportunity to, 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 to go to a really good school. I went to Lehigh University. And I would say that my experience there um, would have been very different if there wasn't an intervention very early on where I went to a program where it was designed for uh, people like me who were going to college for the first time, first generation, um, where this language wasn't common to us. And we took two classes over the summer. Um, they kind of sheltered us in a lot of ways. We met other people um, who looked like me. Um, and that inclusion and, and that kind of, it was almost like therapy with before you needed it, right? And um, we took a couple of real classes, one for credit, one not for credit. Um, I was a big kid away from college because I was away from home, um, you know, and had some distance. But you know, it wasn't it wasn't a long way to fall, right? There was a mattress if 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 I fell, right? Um, a safety net, if you will. Um, and and I think that that helped my experience towards you know um, my love for for the academy and 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 um, enriched why I wanted to, to you know to learn. And I'm I'm thinking about. Um, is this inclusion, you know, question, and and, and it took a, it, it took kind of an insular community to get me included in the larger Lehigh setting, uh, which is just another uh, verification of, um, you know, Dr. Brandon's research, really, in a lot of ways, you know, a personal anecdotal story. Thank you, Buffy or or Asia. How about you in terms of your experiences and Dr. Brandon's um, uh, research? Um, Yeah, definitely. Uh, for me, I um, I can totally relate to Dr. Schultz's uh, anecdote of just having Arupe kind of being that mattress of uh, having that all support system on, on, at all angles. And uh, I think having that experience, it allowed me to, to have that support system as I transitioned to uh, Loyola, because it was always, I still had that support system after I left. Um, and I still felt like um, I was able to, you know, graduate um, because I had uh, people that I've, you know, made connections within that uh, that space that also was tied to Loyola. So it felt like a, an easy way to like network and uh, build other relationships um, at Loyola. So I, I, yeah, I totally agree to feeling that like Arupe was that type of like um, inner group. Um, support system so thank you for that i agree i i, I am encouraged that um, due to the demographic shifts and trends in higher ed that we're finding more colleges and universities being more intentional about uh, creating programs policies and and um, events that um, focus on in inclusion and I am encouraged with new uh, first year uh, uh, student uh, programming uh, events. I'm encouraged that uh, colleges and universities are including holidays like Indigenous uh, Days as an official academic holiday. Uh, that speaks largely for inclusion. I think that's great. So I think as, as we continue to learn from the great um, work and research that um, our distinguished professor, uh, Dr. Brandon is doing, uh, we'll learn more and we'll do better. So I'm encouraged. Well, Buffy, what you said just sort of triggers a, um, a question I have for Dr. Brandon. So implications of your research, implications of your findings for higher ed institutions in general and for leaders uh, in higher ed. 
Yeah, no, thank you. I, I love the comments that were um, shared and even um, like I, I'm a social psychologist, but I identify as a cultural psychologist. So I can, um, yeah, I can understand the power, right? Of even what can seem like such a small change of recognizing um, indigenous people, say for instance, like how that can just have so many, it can signal so many ideas about what's valued, who's valued um, and, and be really powerful. And so I think um, thinking about all of the examples that were shared, um, like I think my message is really simple, right? Is that, um, that it is important to be explicit, right? About who, about valuing, I think multiple ways of being um, and that it can be done very different ways, right? It can be in policies, it can be even in the holidays that are recognized. Um, and that of course it's, it's, it's important to address prejudice, to have mechanisms um, to take reports of prejudice seriously, to denounce um, prejudice, but, um, but to, in, in the policies to recognize that um, people want to feel safe, but they also um, want to feel fully included, like all of them can be at that institution and that to do that, you also have to do those things that recognize pride and stress, right, that recognize the identity is not just, hey, it's this horrible thing that's tied to oppression, but no, that it's um, like people get a lot of value and motivation tied to their identities and that um, it could be really worthwhile for institutions to recognize that and to institute policies that also recognize that. Thank you for that. We're transitioning now to sort of our roundtable discussion. And I'm going to start with you, Buffy. Um, Darty Family College emphasizes a, a culturally sustaining pedagogy, culturally sustaining. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? And why do you think this approach is important for belonging and inclusion? Thank you so much, Father Kate. Culturally sustaining pedagogy is an asset-based approach to teaching that centers um, students sort of lived experiences and their rich cultural backgrounds in the classroom. There are probably three core components of culturally sustaining pedagogy. One, uh, faculty have to have high expectations and standards. They want uh, and work to help students achieve academic success by making sure they provide culturally affirming academic and social supports. Two, uh, faculty uh, serve as a sort of like cultural translators. They help students pr provide, they provide students with access to the dominant or mainstream culture of higher education while also honoring, valuing and sustaining the home and community practices of students, that's key. And then three, um, faculty uh, work really hard to help uh, students develop those critical thinking skills that they need to understand, examine, and also critique existing social order. Now, these three uh, core components of culturally sustaining uh, pedagogy are important in terms of fostering a sense of belonging and inclusion. Um, culturally sustaining pedagogy recognizes that students are producers of knowledge and not just consumers of information. Um, and so I would like to just end with a uh, quote by Dr. Gloria Lanson Billings, who uh, coined the uh, term culturally relevant pedagogy. And Dr. Lansing Billings said that culturally relevant pedagogy really is just good teaching. And that is what we try to do at Doherty Family College. We try to provide good teaching and good mentoring. Thank you for that, Buffy. And I um, love uh, students are producers of knowledge. Um, uh, LaVar, I want to transition to you. Uh, you know, my experience of you uh, uh, as a colleague, very highly respected at Arupe, um, in part because your classroom is very student centered. How do the identities and backgrounds and interests of your students inform your curriculum design and instruction? Oh, thank, um, thank you. I mean, I, I think that, excuse me, that really, I, I think it, I start with research. I really, you know, I know that's a dirty word sometimes, but I, at um, in certain places, but I, I really start with, I have to have the background to really talk about the stuff that is in class. Um, and a lot of my research has to do with really the um, the arrival of immigrants or the arrival of, of people to a new place. Um, so for example, uh, to a new city. 
and that that arrival to that destination that in a lot of ways uh, you know really confirming dr brandon's research again there's an insular community that has, has to be built to be well well enough and well um stable enough to to, to discuss and, and to deal in the politics of the community that was already kind of there um and so a lot of my classes deal with um identity politics they deal with um things like standing um like voting earning um you know social um social responsibility things like that and how people um when they arrive in these new areas find that um and that doesn't matter if the class is an american government class or if it's a class on uh, power rap music in in urban america um the students at arupe have helped shape this class and help shape this class further um i've been at other destinations um with other you know student populations um, with different diversity, right? We don't have a, a great range of age diversity at, 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 at Arupe College, but um, I've been places where someone has checked me on World War II. They've said, hey, you know, I was there, you know, like in the in class, right? And, um, and so that has informed my instruction. And, and for the last five years, I've just been kind of in the field, uh, so to speak, of, of Arupe teaching um, and seeing different people's different experiences of, of, of presidents, uh, people's different experiences of of these this crisis that's been going on for two or more years. I don't want to put it, you know. Um, and so it's 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 fascinating, but it's always remembering that at least some of these students came from come from Waukegan, where where I'm from, and and many most of them come from Chicago, um, and and um, many of them um, are for most of them are first generation uh, college students, um, willing to 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 work and and willing to to research. But the material has to touch them, and it has to be able to um, to to to, to um, it has to be able to, to 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 meet them where they are. You know, I know that's overused a lot, but um, it's tough to step into a class and hear people talking about political philosophy. But when you can talk to them um, about the ways in which it connects to them, or ways in which they may have seen this, maybe in a film or music or you know, in a music uh, article, it's 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 a lot better for them. So I've overspoke. So. Thank you. <laughs> Not at all. Thanks a lot, Lamar. So far, the K. Um, throughout your time at Arupe and now at CTV, what do you think is the importance? Why do you think the importance of belonging um, should be the focus? And why is that? And how do you try to bring that idea to, to, to life at Arupe? Well, you'll, I think you'll recall some of this ages since you were in that inaugural class. You know, for me, I always um, emphasized and continue to do so the word community. Um, I remember um, when Accenture validated our model and a couple of years ago, they interviewed, you know, stakeholders from so many different constituency groups. And one of the students they met with said, you know, I came to Arupe for the affordability, but I stay at Arupe because for the, for the uh, opportunity and the community. And I thought, okay, well, mission accomplished. We have this really rich uh, life-giving community that I think is, is transformative for everybody, um, students, faculty, staff, administrators, alumni, and it's transformative for the larger university. You know, I think early on I was um, and remain very focused on completion and um, you know, this was not just my mission or other administrators mission or someone else. It was um, a collective ownership for student success. So whether it was faculty, staff, administration, advisory board members, we were all talking about, all right, well, what does student success look like um, at, at Arupe? The other thing that, you know, you might recall Asia is that we really encouraged early and consistent and persistent engagement in our community. So that began with orientation. And, you know, our model is a commuter model for the most part, um, but it began with um, an orientation that was commuter, but also residential. And that was the beginning of forming a uh, community. Also, you know, I would say to you and your classmates that we're learning from you, that you're pioneering this college with us. And that wasn't just a slogan. I mean, we learned about um, courses and how to deliver them and uh, length of courses and length of semesters versus sessions. 
so, you know, you really influenced um, our delivery and our curriculum decisions and really the culture of, 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 of the college. So it was very much, I felt we were co-pioneers in, in forming this, this, this new college. Finally, you know, um, I said this earlier, you know, for me, that asset versus deficit, um, you know, I bristle at um, language, I mean, a language that's so deficit and people mean well, and, uh, but I mean, you know, what you said earlier, Buffy, about um, the, 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 the families of students, you know, I was just talking to someone who's thinking about creating a new college and said, well, the students need to be separated from their environments you know, uh, really awful. So, you know, um, stigma, strength, um, prejudice, pride, deficit, asset. So I think by communicating the assets that you and your classmates brought to Arupe, we were saying that, um, you know, you belong here. Not only do you belong here, we need you here. We're better because you are here. And maybe that wasn't so subtle uh, for me all the time, but I think that uh, collectively with faculty and staff, that was the messaging we wanted to get across. Make sense? Absolutely. Okay. All right, so now a question for you, Asia. Um, how did all this translate into your experience uh, at Arup Bay? Um, you know, what was your experience of belonging when you were enrolled at Arup Bay? And what were some of the most specific practices or activities that happened during your two years at Arupe that you know gave you that sense of belonging? Yeah, actually, I think um, you mentioned a lot about um, you know like the retreat. Um, that was like our first encounter where we can like we're literally with people that we're gonna be um, in the classroom with our professors, like Father K was there, everybody was there. So um, I don't think I can uh, ask any other person that like who had like a freshman experience like that, that like actually had like a whole retreat, retreat experience um, with their professors and, um, and having a whole summer um, kind of emulating what classes would be like. I think all, having that, uh, that culminating experience was, uh, was, helpful in the way that we kind of, on the first day, it was already, we already had relationships, with, uh, uh, the people that we were um, in community with. So I think that was so, it started everything um, on those bases. And I think it just grew from there. And like you said, we were co-pioneering. So it felt like we were all in, in this together. And like, um, it was the first year. So we didn't know what we were expecting. And I think having that to add it to that um, experience of like uh, a partnership and um, and every asset, um, I mean, every every aspect of who were there was part of our community and, and we felt that support. And I think that added to the belonging because, you know, I could study with people that like were in my cohort or in an afternoon cohort or, um, you know, my professors were like, you know, an elevator away from, um, that I could talk to and, and talk about the things that we learned in class or things that have grown in my life. And I think having those like little moments in relationship of consistently and persistently, like of like having that engagement um, curated that belonging because um, like you said, uh, Dr. Brian, like there are people like uh, um, who are telling us that we're, we're beautiful and that we're smart and that, you know, we're, we matter and that, um, you know, to like having uh, Dr. Pope, like, professors like him, like um, having a participation in our curriculum of listening to us of what we, um, how we wanna learn and things that we wanna see in the curriculum um, and seeing ourselves reflected in the curriculum um, and having those affinity spaces for, you know, um, there's like black men of success or there were, um, you know, people who um, were uh, undocumented, like having clubs like that, like. Um, feeling seen and heard and having um, other people to uh, those affinity spaces to, to cultivate a, another community within a community. Um, and uh, I think having all those like touchstones um, like created that, um, that belonging. That's why we, we keep, keep going back and we keep going to uh, events and, and panels and um, mentoring other students that are coming in because 
um, it is a it, it is a community that was is so strong, um, and and those relationships that were built were um, always last so long. So, yeah, that's a little bit about that. Thanks very much for that, Asia. All right, this is a question for for all of us, I guess. So, so what are some common mistakes you've seen in institution that institutions make when they're trying to foster a sense of belonging? Why, you know, what were the approaches, and why didn't they work? I would just like to say because anytime we create policies programs um, without getting meaningful feedback from scholars like Asia it's going to be a problem uh, so I've found from experience that we can uh, we think we based on our research and theories we're building something for uh, young scholars um, but we don't have their their um, meaningful involvement in that process, uh, it's going to um, have many problems. Uh, so I would say start start with um, asking scholars, what do they need or want in terms of uh, student engagement and student achievement? I, I also say that it's it's also looking at, at at best practices, which is you know kind of a remix of of, of what Buffy was saying. Is that it, it become you know scholarship? You know, let's look at these as best practices. What's working? Um, you, I, I mean, I think there's two two real world examples at Rupe College that I could point out. One is our our BSU, and then another is our um hip hop um we had a, a kind of hip hop society, right? Um, and with the BSU case, um. A student, you know, at Arupe College felt as though, uh, Father K, you, you you know this that felt as though that um, they wanted an organization and that the organization at LUC wasn't perfect for them. Um, there there are issues with commuting. There are issues. There are real practical issues. There are you know a range of um, social cultural issues. Um, even um, can can we even say um, social economic right that the students who who might be African American who might be black there might be you know different social economic status right and all these things were raised and the student really kind of built and crafted an organization um, and and it's still it's still in existence existence and it's still strong one of the reasons why it's strong is because she wrote the constitution. Um, she approached me on a on on a, we were we were on a uh, like a like a, not a class trip we were on a um a trip uh, down to Springfield for um for this organ another uh, another event another organization that that Arupe helped put on basically um but you know she approached me and said hey I need a professor behind this and 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 she did a great job you know I would say that a similar is kind of with um our communication or media kind of lab. There's a lot of interest um, with a lot of our students for something that is a media type lab, um, even a small room where they can, you know, work with audio or work with kind of video uh, clips and stuff like that. Right next door, a couple a couple uh, doors down, is a school of communication. They have this vast, great space. And we've actually used this space and we re reserved this space. And it's been, and it's been great, but you know, if um, there's a last minute change or if, if there's, it's not our space, right? Um, also, our students, um, they may say different things that, that, that um, LUC might not be prepared for that, that kind of go in the Arupe building, right? Uh, so sometimes in the hallways, you might hear some language that you, you have to code, you know, code switch. You can code switch a little bit. Um, and that's, that's part of being a black male professor who's from Waukegan. You can help people code switch when they need to code switch sometimes without making them feel bad or making them feel any different um in any type of way so um you know it, again i've extended my you know, i've been too far with my welcome but i you know when i start talking about a root-based students i get kind of passionate you know so that's great thanks lavar anything else about approaches that didn't work uh and and why they they, they didn't work yeah, I, I think just to go along um, with so many of the comments, right, that the perspectives of marginalized individuals are invaluable to thinking about how to foster inclusion. But I think um, one important thing and something I think about a lot in my research is that institutions have to figure out how to 
um, how to not have people who have those really valuable perspectives incur costs by sharing those perspectives and doing extra labor that maybe students who are have more kind of privileged or dominant identities that they don't have to do that labor, right? So when I think about like the history of, you know, ethnic studies programs or even, you know, a lot of cultural groups on campus, a lot of the, like just very broadly at university campus, the history of that really is students fighting um, and making extraordinary sacrifices to say, hey, we don't feel like we belong and we need this to feel like we belong. And I think an important insight for institutions is to make sure um, that they are hearing the voices of marginalized communities, but that they're recognizing that everybody has the same amount of time and energy. And so there has to be a way to benefit from their perspective, but somehow reward them or kind of not put them in a situation where they're doing more than other people um, and, and not incurring that sacrifice, right? And so, um, so I, I think that is really important, like how to balance those two, right? That the perspective is valuable, but there's labor to sharing, sometimes just even sharing the perspective, there's, um, there's costs to that. And so, um, you know, so protecting the students um, and their contributions, I think is also really important. Thanks very much for that. I'm conscious of time, and I know we want to uh, save some time for some questions and answers from our attendees. But um, another question I, I, I do want to get out there, and that is, so, you know, what's one single policy or approach that colleges and universities can implement that would make a, 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 a significant impact on belonging and inclusion? What's something that universities could do uh, that would really impact um, belonging and inclusion for its student body. I would I would say the summer the summer classes um, or the summer like a summer session um, before, if possible, before they um, before students um, arrive to where they're acclimated to to the environment um, where they're actually taking real classes or maybe some math, like where you know, the, the, the math and, and um, English curriculum um, is introduced. Um, that's, that's, that would be starting maybe, maybe some housing. You know, I think we need to look at the housing thing with a balance of still being at home. But I just think of how many of my advisees, I'm, I'm switching from students to, to you know, advisees, people who I see you know, from start to end in graduation, they have so many, um, um, so they're so dependent so many people are dependent on them at home, right? They may have an elder that they're taking care of or children that they're, you know, helping, you know, or, you know, cousins that they're watching. And, and, it, and it's, it becomes tough when they're academic, you know, and, it, and, and not that they don't want to see them. They need to be away. You know, you know Father Craig, I, don't, I, don't, I agree, don't take them away from their families. But, but in some ways, you know, some students, it, it may be better for them to be on campus or be a couple miles away. So on-campus housing and, um, and some kind of um, summer not intervention, but summer college readiness kind of program is what, is what I would say. Like a bridge, a bridge program. A, a bridge, a bridge program. And, um, and, and there's, there's populations that, you know, I would certainly target in terms of demographics, you know, where the demographics of Chicago, you know, who's in Chicago don't match who's in school, right? And I'm spe specifically speaking about Black men, um, but, um, but, but Black folks in general that where, where I think that, um, you know, there's some, you know, that there's some programs that would help explain some differences between the college institution and, 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 and maybe, you know, their backgrounds, our backgrounds. Other, go ahead. I was going to say, it's hard for me to think of one particular uh, policy. Um, I, I guess I, I believe if we're really serious about institutional cultural change, then that there should be uh, a systematic review of all policies, practices, and procedures uh, through a DEI lens of uh, belonging and inclusion. Uh, and then uh, based on those findings, do the work. But to go back to what Dr. Um, Brandon said, but reward the young scholars, the students, the faculty who are doing the work, um, uh, recognize them, reward them, because we know that for real uh, sustaining institutional change to happen. Um, what we reward in our system is what we reproduce in our system. Um, 
So yes, we need to do the work, but reward the people who do the work. Thank you for that. You know, I think for myself, it's really attitudinal. How can, and this is, you know, how do you pull this off uh, on a university-wide level, but I think it's through cultural competency, something that you said, Dr. Brand, a moment ago. And so often I would hear, well, now, you know, how are the Arupe students integrating with a larger campus? And I always felt like the onus was always on the Arupe students and it wasn't, you know, kind of a shared thing with the entire campus. And to your point, you know, this is only so many hours in the day and, you know, these are commuter students and they're, you know, they're 18 and 19 years old, just like other first and second year students. So um, how do we kind of shift it from, you know, um, the spotlight on, uh, you know, this student in terms of making it more of a culture of, of, of the university? I also want, just want to say, I mean, how, do you make, how, how does this become an attitude where every student knows that there is one, you know, faculty member or staff member who knows them, that they can trust, that they have a, a deep relationship with, and that's really transformative. I would say at Arupe, many students have multiple relationships with professors and staff and administrators, but one, you know, and, you know, the other piece would be, does every student have one activity a week that's going to really engage them on campus, whether it's a, a favorite class or um, uh, a co-curricular or an affinity group or an on-campus job. I don't know what it is, but and I, part of this is again, my you know, engagement, retention, completion you know, piece as well. But that attitude, you know, and I guess finally in terms of attitude so i'm you know uh, a catholic priest and very influenced by pope francis who talks a lot about accompanying people so you know i always saw my role as you know we're accompanying students um during their first post-secondary ed experience and and you know in accompaniment that means that there's a give and take there's back and forth i was learning a lot from the students in, in, in that i was accompanying you know and i hopefully uh the, my companionship was a benefit for them as well so age i jumped in i did you want to say something uh before i because uh, i think you were about to say something before i started babbling here yeah no i just uh i mean i'm not i'm not too knowledgeable about apologies but i think all the things that y'all mentioned so far is um I think that's what was the key to um, everything being so successful at Arupe because um, there were um, people listening to us and people actually putting effort to, 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 to see what we were saying being reflected. Um, and it wasn't um, just on us. And, and I think too, yeah, I think Loyola, like, or, you know, host colleges, like having that, um, that cultural understanding, um, uh, them knowing about us and um, would have helped that transition a lot um, because because we didn't have to like um, explain what a rupee was or um, what kind of students we were and um, having their perceptions of us too um, being kind of tainting our experience in, in that way. So um, yeah, I think having all those things that y'all said, uh, I, I totally agree um, is what can help bring belonging to campuses. Asia, thank you for that. I think we shift now to um, my colleague at Come to Believe, um, Education Programs Manager, Sam Adams, who's going to facilitate um, some, uh, some Q&A time before we wrap up. Great, thank you. And I wanna say thank you to Dr. Brandon for sharing your research. You know, sometimes you read research and you're like, you know, what do, what do we do with this? There's such a disconnect between research and practice. and your research is so actionable and concrete. And I think it really undergirded this conversation very easily because it's designed to inform practitioners. And that's what we have here today. So thank you for that. Um, this is something that uh, Dr. Brennan, when, I, when we spoke prior to the panel, you mentioned that actually some of this pride and prejudice research draws upon the voices of students. It's not just a research experiment, but you actually look at what students have written about their experiences on campuses. Um, so I wanna start there. And, and uh, Buffy, you also mentioned this in terms of not doing things for students, but with them. Um, so what are some, some best ways to engage with students? You know, is it, is, is it surveys? Is it focus groups? Is it empowering them to leadership positions? How should we think about um, kind of meaningful student engagement in belonging and inclusion initiatives? 
and anybody can jump in. That's not a question for a, for a single individual. Um, but actually, I mean, maybe Dr. Brand, do you want to share about how you use the student perspective for your research, and then maybe others can build on that? Yeah. So um, yeah. So so I've done some research where, um, in addition to using quantitative methods, we um, actually did some like qualitative methods as well, where we looked at. And so this is kind of. Um, an example of student voices, but again, it's uh, student voices um, coming at cost, right? So this was um, in the context of like the 26, around 2016, when there were widespread protests on university campuses in the United States around issues of inclusion, um, students at 80 different universities um, publicly shared their demands that they presented to administrators for what they would like to see on campus um, to foster a sense of inclusion. And what we did um, using some text analysis, we looked at, well, what were some themes across these 80 different institutions? Like what were students actually asking for? And we found evidence that of course they were asking for things that would be consistent with addressing prejudice, right? Like they wanted there to be transparent and clear um, actions taken when, you know, when acts of discrimination were reported. Um, but they also were asking for, um, for practices um, that would be tied to pride, right? Like they wanted more investment in cultural centers. They wanted more funding for ethnic studies programs, right? And so it's an example um, that, you know, where it was really beneficial for us to be able to hear um, those student voices. I wouldn't recommend students having to protest and get to the point where they need to um, draft out demands because that that's extraordinary labor. Um, but I think that um, there's a lot of wisdom um, that um, can be had not just from students, but also um, from, I think from scholars across disciplines, right? So like I'm a psychologist, but when I'm thinking about like, well, what's meaningful for belonging? I like, there's so much value that comes from perspectives, right? Like I'm thinking of people like Bell Hooks or people um, in, um, in other fields who have written extensively about marginalization and um, multicultural identities and belonging. And so I think there are, um, insights that can be had by um, by not just um, assigning things like that in our class, which I think are really powerful in curriculum, but those voices that are already published um, um, and that are maybe tied to disciplines that we're not a part of, like they have they have so many insights. Because one of the things I worry about with only relying on student voices is that students are going through the experience, and and sometimes um, people can't name everything that they're experiencing or what they need, um, and so there's I, I just think there's so much wisdom um, in particular from scholars um, who've written extensively. I like I to be honest, I've been influenced a lot by W.E.B. Du Bois. And I'm a psychologist, um, but um, Du Bois has thought a lot about um, what it means to be um, marginalized um, in U.S. society. Right. And so I think um, there's I think a blending of maybe getting direct feedback from students, but also um, not being afraid to look at um, scholars across disciplines um, who have written about inclusion and also just the experience of identity navigating um, spaces and especially in contexts like the United States. Excellent, thank you. Uh, Buffy, Asia, Lavar, any from your practical experience, you know, whether Asia is you as a student leader at, at Rupe or um, from a faculty or, or admin perspective, how do you all think about trying to get really gain perspectives of students and engage belonging? I, I mean, I, I think that um, sur surveys are, are value, valuable, I, and I hate to, you know, uh, bring bring that tool out, but um, when we began or when we begin um, each semester with like the BSU, the current BSU, I'm the, um, the um, faculty advisor for that. Um, we start with a survey. What you know? What are you, what are your experiences like here? Um, what do you need from us? Kind of, um, and it's a pretty good response rate, you know. Um, and from there, we fold into kind of meetings, right? So um, it's student led like that. Um, the, my mind is is thinking about kind of the whole organization of, of Rupe College, though, and I'm thinking about how the students' voices kind of feed into to my work, kind of writ large too, right? So in addition to like this BSU, this kind of um, the Black Student Union work, you about like the larger institution. And um, in a real way, Arupe takes like the student voices. And then because our faculty are led by like kind of um, this, this leadership model that is kind of um, when we, we introduce a new course, we vote on it as a faculty. 
uh, body. So there's um, shared governance is, is the word that, you know, and so if the student voices are the drivers here, in addition to that, we have faculty, many of whom, some of whom are first generation students who are working with these first generation students designing the curriculum and then voting on the curriculum. Um, in a lot of ways, um, you know, it, it's, it's um, being developed by, by student voices um, and faculty voices based off of student voices. So um, that's something that I was thinking about as, as this presentation went on and on, you know, and, and the way that, you know, uh, Dr. Brandon's, re uh, Brandon's research and um, the way that Arupe is built, if that makes sense to people. Asia, I think that may make sense to you. You know, uh, your classes are responsive because, you know, you may have said something in the class or there may have been some reviews and, and your professor looked at them and said, hey, let's make a change to this or let's design a class, African-American studies class that that better fits this because it's English, English classes and doing what it's supposed to be doing. Yeah, and I think too, like with, um, I don't know, when I took surveys for courses like Eloyola compared to like Arupe, like it was different because um, I don't think like when we do surveys for end of courses at Loyola, it felt different because it was, um, it seemed like it was, I don't know, they weren't gonna like listen or, or things weren't gonna change. It was just like kind of a, a, a thing that we had to do at the end of each course. Um, so it didn't, I know sometimes I didn't feel like doing it because it was just, it, it was gonna be the same I felt. But um, since Rupe is so small, uh, tight knit, like um, and, and there are professors and faculty and administration who really do care about, you know, student center uh, work and, um, like you like take take student voices to 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 form um, the way the program is set up um, and actually see it um, and be manifested and see our like our school being shaped um, by our, our our experiences because it's different every year so even having that like check in um, like throughout the year like was was helpful too because. Um, yeah, it's different for every class, like, you know, different experiences, like people might need housing, people might not, you know, um, or um, or need certain jobs, like right after college, or some people want to go to a four year, like, so that is so different. And I think to that point of like meeting students where they at, like, this is how we do it by um, consistently like surveying and, and, and getting from people that we trust, which is like our professors and advisors. So. And Dr. Brandon, your point is is taken about doing that extra work that um, students are doing as well, uh, whether it be emotional um, and, and also the ways in which, um, you know, so, sometimes these protests or when students are protesting, they're putting themselves at personal risk um, and in and, 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 and ways, right? So um, your point's taken about them sometimes having, them unfortunately doing that extra work and, and, and we need to avoid that. The institution needs to do work that students shouldn't, shouldn't have to do and put themselves at risk. No, but as I was listening to you in Asia, um, like I agree that surveys, especially to Asia's point, if students feel like they're being heard, then it's not going to feel like labor, right? And it also could be really a good tool, like to the earlier question about how to make students feel like like there's at least one professor who knows who they are. Like when you when you have a big class, I, I do agree. If you have a brief survey um, throughout the quarter and you do take that information seriously, it is a way of making students feel heard and seen. And like maybe the professor cares about them as more than just a student in the class that they really care. And so I think um, that yeah, like like the it's the surveying could be a really good tool and one way to make it not labor and let it actually be a relational tool, but also a tool that can influence the environment environment and the culture is to the, then the onus is on instructors and on institutions to take those voices seriously. Well, Dr. Brennan, that takes me back to your earlier slide about President Obama's uh, remarks after the Charleston massacre, where young people go to church and they feel like, and Asia, you picked up on this, where, you know, everyone is accepted as smart and beautiful and where everyone matters. And if you're filling out a survey, <laughs> And you don't feel like it matters much, but you know that, that you completed it or not. That's a message. Um, I think when everyone feels like they do matter, that's that's how belonging happens. All right, so it's uh, one fifty nine on the East Coast. So I think we're going to wrap up now. I'm going to share the screen just so everybody uh, can see 
the organizations that are represented here if you're interested in learning more. So uh, you have the CTB network, you have Dr. Brandon's lab at UCLA, Doherty Family College and Rupe College. I'd encourage you to look up uh, the organizations, find out. Um, I think these are real exemplars in terms of both from the research perspective, but also putting these ideas into practice. Um, so thank you all for sharing your perspective with us today. Um,